So we teach about all kinds of things on Sunday mornings in church, parenting or how to use your money or uh, all kinds of things about life, how we bring justice in the earth, how, we, how God wants us to love one another and love the world. And uh, we, we always go back for our source to the Bible, That's a copy I use a lot, and um, but at the moment, we're just doing a series, kind of thinking, okay, let's, rather than just using the axe to cut at things, let's actually look at the axe. So we're just having a, a few Sunday mornings where we actually think about the Bible itself as the, the thing we turn to. And um, just before I get going, I've got um, a, a friend called Andrew Wilson. Some of you will have heard Andrew speak at big conferences and stuff. He's written a number of books and uh, uh, also writes for some websites. And uh, one of his books is called Unbreakable. It's uh, What the Son of God Said About the Word of God. I have two copies here, and I am willing to give these away to the first two people who come up to me here to grab one right now. So um, that's just... uh, There we go. So... Okay, good. That's good. Now... um, He's just having a quick fight with the chair down there. These chairs, you know, they're terrible. The comfy chair. Do you remember that? Um, sorry, that's... What, what was that? Monty Python. Yeah, there we go. Anyway, moving along, moving along. Back in the days of Monty Python, when I was 16 years old, um, <clears throat> I was not brought up going to church or anything like that. Um, but when I was at school, for, it's, we had O-levels in those days, we were made to study religious education because that, I guess that might even still be a legal obligation today. I don't actually know. Um, but we were actually made to do the O-level as well. And my class was called Divinity. And so if we have the first slide up, Colin, for my PowerPoint, uh, I actually still have the, uh, the exercise books, which um, you can see it's got Andrew Ryland, Divinity was called the subject. I, um, I wasn't divine at all, I can assure you in this. In fact, I was pretty an- antagonistic to Christianity. So one of my essays, which w- my final line of my essay was, there is no different meaning, and the teacher put very sad zero. Gave me zero, right? Look, can you see it? Look, up there, top right. Because the content of the essay was not very uplifting, I can assure you. And looking at my books, I, can, I think the teacher must have been a real Christian. I, didn't, I had no construct or way of evaluating that at the time. But looking back, it looks like I think this guy must have really been a Christian. And so that's what he thought about my essay. And then I've got another bit of an essay here, of which um, uh, I've, uh, it's a bit faded. My pen was running out as I was writing this bit. Maybe that was divine. You know, <laughs> the pen was running out. So I write here, what is interesting to see is the fact that both these Gospels, it was a comparison of Matthew and Luke's Gospel and the Nativity story, um, both these Gospels have almost nothing in common. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, also, in both Gospels, there are contradictive remarks and put together, they appear to be quite antagonistic. It is beyond me how anybody can believe in such fictitious nonsense. <laughs> It may be very beautiful, but in my mind, this is semi-mythical his, uh, semi, a semi-mythical history book. That's what I thought of the Bible and was willing to say. I, I failed the O-level. Uh, uh, so, um, <laughs> I was deliberate. I didn't want to pass it. I, I, I was rather offensive about it all and, uh, you know, I guess 
we are different things at 16, but there we go. So, um, incidentally, I don't agree with what I wrote there. I think you can... Uh, <laughs> the reason, they're complementary, actually. Matthew tells the story from jo the point of view of Joseph and Joseph's family, and Luke tells the story, nativity story from the point of view of Mary and, and her side of the family. So it's, they're actually very complementary stories, but there's none so blind as those who will not see. And... Um, now, as Christians, uh, we don't treat the copy of the Bible with any great awe, particularly. I mean, I try to look after it because they're quite expensive and I don't want to spoil it. But if you ever have known a Muslim, a Muslim will never put a Quran on the floor. They will be very, very respectful of how they treat a copy of the Bible. Uh, 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 in fact, they would treat the Bible with the same respect as they would the Quran. And so there can be opportunities for offence in that respect because I would happily put my Bible on the floor or whatever. And now you might say, well, wait a minute, Andrew, look, it's got all gold on it and everything. Doesn't that mean you... So I want to explain why there's gold on a more expensive Bible. And the reason is it, it, it means it doesn't pick up the dirt so much. Because when you have a book you use a lot, it will get really dirty here because, you know, truth be told, you don't always clean your hands, you know. So, the, and it just gets very dirty. So that's the only reason there's gold. It's not because we think this is some special sort of thing that the book itself, it's the words inside that we think are amazingly special. And that's what uh, Christians think about these things. And I remember when I was first a Christian, I was about 18, uh, when I was 18 when I became a Christian, and I went to this youth group in this church, and all the other Christians, who generally, they were young people, so they had rather more inexpensive Bibles that didn't have this gold on the edge. And their Bibles were very, really, really dirty, and they were all messy. And I'd been to this bookshop and got this Bible, and it was all squeaky clean and new. So I, I, I didn't want to stand out. You know what it's like when you're a teenager, you want to stand out. I went out in the garden, I got some soil, and I rubbed the soil in here so it looked dirty. I threw the book around in, in the garage and then I found some keys and I it's what they do with reprodu reprodu reproduction furniture isn't it make it look like antique I smashed at this bible with this these keys I got all over it to make it look used so that then when I went along to the youth group my bible looked like their bible their bible had got to look like that because they'd read it mine had got to look like that because I'd done all this to it <laughs> and um, and that made me feel better and uh, you see, this book is, is, is not a lucky charm. It's not a book of spells that if only I could say the right words, thing, my life might turn out well. Uh, it's much more, it's a window into the heart of God. It's a window into the call of God. It's a window into, into what God promises us. It's a window in which God actually describes what the world is like. And it gives us an accurate description of a world that is actually spoiled with sin and evil, but also what God has done about it and how he can rescue us. And, and, and I think it's wonderful. And eventually I was able to relax a bit and not be so hard done, not so uptight about the fact my Bible was new. And because it's a very big book, isn't it? So this one looks particularly fat. I mean, not many books are this big. And most, most of us looking at a book that big, we think, oh, I don't know whether I can read that. But it's a bit like climbing Mount Everest. You do it one step at a time. And so eventually I relaxed and just thought, well, I'll just start reading bits of it and we'll see where we get to. So I want to think then initially about what might make us willing to start hearing the word of God. Because the important thing is hearing the word of God. There's a, my next slide is, those who hear shall live. 
Not those who read shall live. It's very few mentions of read in the Bible because most people couldn't read in those days. Of course, there were many who could. We know Jesus read and wrote. And um, so he read, uh, he spoke several languages and he could read and write in several languages. But not many people could read. But actually, reading's not the important thing. Hearing is the important thing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can read and then realise I haven't actually taken in anything I read. Yeah. Sometimes I switch on the radio specifically to catch the weather. This is in the old days before you could just get it on your phone. And, 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 then, and then I'd notice, oh, they're doing the headlines. I've missed the weather. Did you, you ever, ever done that? You've, you've kind of turned on, but you didn't really hear. And there's something terribly important about hearing. And uh, I, I don't... I, 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 had been looking in the Bible, as you saw earlier, for my O-level divinity uh, classes, and it meant nothing to me. It, I saw no, nothing pleasing in the Bible. I, I just saw it as something obnoxious, offensive, telling me things that uh, upset me and offended me and annoyed me. But something changed, and I think it was God that changed me. And, um, and unexpectedly, I found I started to admire and to love Jesus. And it was because I, some friends took me to a meeting. I had a quarrel with the guy who did the talk. Maybe some of you are going to come up and quarrel with me afterwards. He gave me a book, actually, to take away and to read. And after reading the book, I, I prayed a prayer to God, and I started some kind of tentative relationship with God. And because I thought, well, Christians are supposed to read the Bible, I started reading it. And I remember reading the book, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It's called Romans. It's in the New Testament. And I remember reading it and thinking, this is me. This is describing me. And that was the first time that happened for me. But it was after I had started a relationship with Jesus. And I, and I guess that might be something I would like to say now, that actually, if you don't love Jesus, I don't think you'll love the Bible. But if once you start to love Jesus, once you start to receive his goodness, then it becomes more natural that uh, you'd love the book that he has arranged to be written for us. And so that's really important. And that's despite the fact that I still find things in this book very disturbing. So the next passage that I, I've put up, um, Jesus was often having um, people quarrel with him. And so he says to these people, Jesus replied, you're in error. Right? He tells them you're wrong. You've got this wrong, guys. He's speaking to some Jewish religious leaders. Uh, you're in error because you do not know what? You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And I found even in the end, the things in the Bible that I thought can't be right or I didn't like proved to me that this was the word of God. Because after all, if I agreed with everything in the Bible, if, it's, if all my opinions were confirmed, it would actually make me think that I was God. Right? But thank God I'm not God. And you're even more thankful. So, um, and actually I found that the things initially I hated when I first heard them, later on, I found I could think, actually, that probably is true. And later on again, I could even begin to actually love. And so, and I think that's because God works. So the next verse, a, it says in one of the Psalms, it says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
And, and, you know, initially when we read that, we think, oh, if I just take delight in the Lord, then he'll give me that new iPhone X or give me that. But that's not what it means. What it means is he'll give you the desires. He will actually give you better desires. He'll change your desires. You won't desire pornography anymore. You won't desire to swear and cuss. You won't desire to control people like you've done before. You, he can set you free from all those desires and give you new desires. The good desires, the desires that deepen your being. You know, yeah, that's a good, that's a wholesome desire. And so, uh, you know, we, of course, in the modern world, we're often told, oh, just be yourself. But frankly, you should be very glad I'm not just being myself because I'd be a very horrible, unpleasant person. I guess Harvey Weinstein, however you say his name, he, people have been around him just being himself and they haven't enjoyed that. Right? And I think that'd be true of all of us. If, uh, if we had the power and authority to ignore everyone else, uh, as it were, and just be ourselves, which apparently he has had. So as we engage with this book... We're wanting to actually hear it. And I want to encourage us again to, to, to do that on the basis of how Jesus dealt with the book. Because he often quoted the Old Testament. He frequently says, it, it is written. Right? So it's clear that Jesus, even the Son of God, Jesus, read the Old Testament, the scripture, the Jewish scripture. And he took it seriously. And he said, it, it's written. And so... I have this passage here from Mark's chapter 7, Mark's Gospel, and um, he's again quarrelling with the religious leaders. Um, you know, I think whenever you spend time with Jesus, you're going to find that you've got sacred cows he wants to challenge, because <laughs> that's what happened all the time in the Gospels. And, and actually, you, we are the slaves of those sacred cows, and God, it's a good thing to be set free of them. But all the while you have them, you think you, you cling on to them as treasures. But once Jesus gets into your life, he begins to be able to challenge those sacred cows, and you begin to see them. Yeah, why do I want to cling on to that stupid thing? And you begin to be able to let go of those sacred cows. So one of the sacred cows for Jewish leaders is being challenged here, these Jewish religious leaders. And... and Let's not get hung up, they were Jewish religious leaders. If he came today, I bet he'd really wind up the, the Labour supporters, socialists, he'd wind up conservatives and capitalists, he'd wind up everybody, right? He, because he, we all have sacred cows, okay? It's just he was a Jew, he lived in the Jewish nation, so it was Jewish people that got wound up by him then. So reading from verse 9, and he continued... You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. Do you see, in this passage, Jesus equates the commands of God with what Moses said and with the word of God. He says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions, your sacred cows, the things you have put made a priority. And friends, this, we're still doing that today. There are people, we have convictions that we have things which we think and we hold above the opinion of God. And he says then, for Moses said, right, these are the commands of God. For Moses, what Moses said is the commands of God. Honour your father and mother. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, right, you've created your religious rules, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer uh, let them do anything for their father or mother. 
Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. So we have the, the, the commands of God equated with what Moses said, equated with the word of God, and all set against the traditions of people. And so he was, and when Jesus was challenging them, he wasn't saying the Old Testament is wrong. He was saying you've got the Old Testament wrong. Okay? And that's a very important distinction as well. We need to face the fact that during church history, sometimes Christians and the church have interpreted the Bible wrongly. But the Bible itself was not wrong. We want to stand and say, no, we believe the Bible is the word of God. Sometimes we've interpreted it in a very foolish way. It's been used to defend apartheid in South Africa. It's been used to defend all kinds of things that are wrong. Okay? But that doesn't mean the book itself is wrong. It means that people have twisted hearts and have used it wrongly. And that's what Jesus was challenging right here. He's saying, look, you have set aside, actually, the, the truth of this book. And you've imposed your traditions, your beliefs. Don't do that. Let us constantly seek to let this word become, come through more clearly to us. And, uh, but something else what Jesus does with scripture is he presumes to add to it, to, 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 so we get these verses, there's a whole string of them, I've just picked out three on the next slide. This is in the famous Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who knew the Old Testament, and he said, says to them this, you have heard that it was said. Now it was written as well, do you remember God, in, he gave Moses these tablets of stone on which he'd written the Ten Commandments, God himself had written it, but actually we're told that it's said because God, before God ever writes, he says. Before God ever writes, he says. And we want to hear what God says. And when, he, when we read what is written, we're trying to hear what is said. And so he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, he sets himself up as an authority who can actually, uh, as it were, edit, add to the Old Testament. And this is an extraordinary claim, right? It's a quite extraordinary claim. And so we must all grapple with that, actually. Who is, a per who is this person who claims to be able to speak for God and to adjust what God has previously said, to edit it, to add to it? And he says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then another excerpt here. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That was the kind of tit for tat kind of morality that is, appears in some parts of the Old Testament. It's a quote from Exodus 21. But he says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And he adjusts this eye for eye and tooth for tooth and says, hey, how about having some mercy shown? And then verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbour, Leviticus 19, 18, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he challenges us to a depth of love that is quite extraordinary. So as I say, the question is whether we hear it. Those who hear shall live. Those who hear shall live. Are you hearing? Jesus says, Though he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What are your ears like? So it's not whether we read it, it's whether we hear it. 
And to hear means to allow it to direct, to shape our whole being, our beliefs, our perceptions, our understanding, our faith. And so let me illustrate this, because in the Bible we're told that God is good. We sang it this morning, didn't we? God is good. But we're also told that at times God is angry. Now, there was a time in my life when I would have said, it's not good to get angry, so it can't be true that God is good if he also gets angry. So the Bible must be wrong because it's either, either God isn't good because he gets angry or he is good and he never gets angry and where it says he does get angry, it's wrong. Right? In other words, I was saying I have a rule book which is above God. I am more important than God, in other words. I am the, I am the being in the universe who exists above God and I am the one, therefore, who can say whether God is right or wrong and do you see where that's the assumption that's there? But I've actually found that as I kept reading the Bible, rather than just getting angry and offended or setting myself above the scripture that Jesus taught, that rather just to reflect upon it and think, okay, well, it seems that God can be good and also get angry at times. And then in reflecting on it, began to realize, actually, do you know, if you don't get angry about evil and injustice, that is not good. Do, do you understand? It, it, you cannot be a good person if you are not angry about injustice and evil because it would mean walking by on the other side of the road saying these things don't matter when they definitely do. And so you begin to realise, actually, no, to be truly good, God must be angry about evil. And when you look at every occasion in Scripture where God is told to be angry, it is always in reaction to terrible evil. So now I'd like to read the passage from which I get that verse, those who hear shall live. It's from John chapter 5 and uh, from verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Here we go again. He's, he's challenging their sacred cows. They say you shall do no work on the Sabbath. It's in the Old Testament. It says that. And Jesus is saying, well, it is good to have a day of rest, but there's sick people here and I'm healing them. Right? Because it's good to do good. Right? It's good to do good. It's always the right time to do good. And he says, he says elsewhere, you know, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, right? This was made to be a blessing for us, not a burden on us. The Sabbath wasn't something we had to carry as a burden. It was given to us for blessing. And actually, too many of us don't take enough Sabbath rest, actually. We could do with hearing that command of God. Look, rest. <laughs> because we have a world that says, be productive, be productive. And if you're not being productive, buy, buy, buy. And so it says, verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, well, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working, because our God is working to bring justice in the earth, to do good, to raise up those who are downtrodden, to put right all the mess the world has got into. He's, you might say, why doesn't he do it all at once? Well, that's because he's kind, actually, and because he's patient. And... And then for 18, for this reason, this is John, the gospel writer, is giving, he's explaining about how, what was going on here. For this reason, they, these Jewish leaders, tried all the more to kill him. 
Why? Well, firstly, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the sacred cow was being challenged, but two, he was even calling God his own father, right? making himself equal with God. And now, of course, Christians have then looked at this and began to realize, yes, of course, that's because Jesus is equal with God. Right? He is God. He was fully man, but he is fully God as well. God, God is one, but he is in three persons. He's one in one way, he's three in another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so verse 19, it says, Jesus gave them this answer. This is what he actually said to them. Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. He's, he's proclaiming the absolute unity that he has with the Father, as well as his equality. He was claiming to be absolutely equal with the Father, but also that he was completely united with the Father. You can't get a cigarette paper between Father and, and Son, or between the Spirit and the Father. Right? Because whatever the Father does, he says, the Son also does. They are completely united. Yes, God is one. For the Father loves the Son. And shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In other words, here's another thing of the equality. Just as God is the source of life, the Son is the source of life. Right? They are equally God. We are not a source of life. I know, I know you can pr- procreate children, but I, I, there's the, isn't it the law of threes? You can go three months without um, food, I think it is. You can go three days without water and three minutes without air. Something like that. So we need all these things, don't we, to stay alive. God needs nothing to be alive. Um, and then uh, verse 22 Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. That's actually quite a powerful thing here. The Father is God, the person we would call God. Jesus is also divine. But if you don't honour Jesus, you're not honouring God. There are many people who say, oh yeah, I follow God, like Pradeep was sharing this kind of generic kind of God idea. But... God has revealed himself above all in Christ. So if you reject Christ, you are rejecting God, actually. Rejecting God, the Father. And then verse 3. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Wonderful words. Very truly I tell you. I mean, this is God speaking. He doesn't really need to affirm it other than just say it. But he, for our blessing and for our encouragement and assurance, he says, very truly, I, right, Jesus, the Son of God, tell you, whoever hears, not just reads, hears my word and believes him who sent me. This, so you need to hear the word that Christ speaks, but also believe him, the Father, God, the Father who sent him, has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, he says it again, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
I believe that's what happened to me when I was 18 years old. I had no awareness of God because the Bible tells us that all human beings are, have got some sort of inbuilt mechanism to, to hear God, to know God. But we had access to the panel and we all had a go at the panel and we tried to rewire it. We found it, we didn't like our guilty conscience talking to us, so we stuck a screwdriver in and we messed around with it to, we don't like this feeling guilty, stop it. And, messed, and then we messed up the mechanism. We can't, now we don't have an awareness of God in quite the same way. And that's what it is to be dead. To be, to be unable to communicate. And so Jesus says, look, I tell you a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then a, probably one of the most profound verses in the Bible, the next verse, verse 26 For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. This states the most, one of the, uh, something I've already referenced, but something very fundamental. The Father has life in himself. It is a statement about what it is to be God. That you, he, you, God is just alive. He doesn't need air, oxygen. God needs nothing. He simply is alive. He is self-existent, yeah? He, this is the one being in the universe that has no cause, has no beginning. He's simply self-existent. And Jesus claims here that it isn't just the Father who has this quality, has this property of being self-existent, because the Son also has life in himself. Christ is also God. Uh, he's also divine. He just has life in himself. And um, the, the verse has other profundity in it, but we'll leave that there. Um, and then verse 27, he's given him, that's the Father has given to Christ, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. But that verse 25, those who hear the voice, sorry, those who hear will live. Those who hear will live. Those who hear, I so want to hear, don't you? Some difficult ha things happened later on in Christ's ministry and a lot of the people who started following Jesus left off following him because of some of the hard words Jesus said they found difficult to receive. And so Jesus turned to the twelve. Verse 67, it's a slide there, Colin. You need to jump a couple, sorry. It's John uh, 6. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? He'd heard something. He'd heard and he'd come alive. I hope you've known that experience. And if you haven't known it, I just pray from the bottom of my heart that from today you would think, oh, I want that. I want to be alive in that way. I want to hear in that way. So... Um, and this is why God has given us this book, so that we might hear and live. Those who hear shall live. But there are other reasons Scripture gives us why he's given us that book, so I'm going to move along. It's so that we may live, but also so that we may believe. So in John chapter 20, there's a slide for this, Colin, John 20, 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Like God is yearning that you would believe and have life. Or to teach us to hope, Romans 15.4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. There's a lot of things dragging the hope out of you. This book can put hope back in. And it's for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Well, that's in 2 Timothy 3. I taught it from that passage a couple of weeks ago. And then it's to make us wise, to give us joy, to revive us, to enlighten us, to warn us, and to lead us to enjoying his reward. That's Psalm 19. I spoke from that passage the end of August. There's all kinds of benefits. So how do you get these benefits? Well, I want to tell you, you need the Holy Spirit's help. You need to say, Holy Spirit, help me. So Jesus taught in John 14, there is a slide for this one, Colin. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you everything I've said to you. Right? So we need his help. We, we want his help. Um, and without his help, we'll never really get this. Someone said that the Bible is like uh, um, one of those uh, pot noodles. If you just get a pot noodle out and tear the foil lid off and then start trying to eat it, it's going to be ever so difficult. Right? Have you ever tried? You were desperate maybe, too hungry to wait. No, what you need to do is to boil the kettle, pour the water in of the Holy Spirit and mix it up. Then you have something that can be very nourishing. You might say, oh, I'm, I don't eat pot noodles. Listen, it's just an illustration, okay? And um, just work with me here. But so we need the Holy Spirit's help. So it, whenever we turn to the Bible, there's a kind of veil that, that, that you know, the mechanism has, has been broken. Now, once we turn to Christ, the mechanism's been repaired, but it's still not in perfect working order. So you just say, oh, Holy Spirit, help me. I need help to understand this. And, to, and you may say, I'm not sure I even want to start that. But why wouldn't you take a venture? Think, it's just possible this could be a message from God. Now, it's not like other books. Don't start at the beginning and work all the way through. It'd be best to start with one of the Gospels in the New Testament near the, near the end, maybe Mark's Gospel, something like that. would be a great place to start. And then come and ask someone which bit to read after that, okay? And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you. But although we ask the Holy Spirit, we can still use our, our own faculties, our own being to grasp it. So the Apostle Paul says... Reflect on what I am saying is the next slide. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. In other words, yes, you ask the Holy Spirit, but you're also supposed to do some reflecting, because when you do the reflecting, the Lord, that's when the Holy Spirit will help you. It's no good just reading and then going off and um, reading, you know, your favourite paper or something like that. No, do, to try and do a little reflecting, because then, then the Lord can use that to give you insight. And that's how we expose ourselves more fully to hear the word of God. And so it's quite helpful to, um, uh, to put your own name into it, for example. So you could take this very verse and say, reflect. You can put emphasis on different words. You could go, reflect on what I'm saying. For the Lord will give me insight into all of this. Reflect on what I am saying. For the Lord will give me insight into all of this reflect on what I am saying 
you can, you, you know, this is the way you kind of reflect and sort of hear what is being said. Um, now, of course, different parts of the Bible are easier or more difficult to get, get a grip on, aren't they? And it's a bit like foodstuffs, because, you know, in earlier in the autumn or late summer you can have be going for a walk around the area here and you find some bramble bushes and you can literally just pick the blackberries can't you off and when they're ripe you can eat them there and then if you don't mind eating the odd maggot <laughs> agreed yeah and and you and you immediately maybe you're out on a walk you didn't bring any water with you there's a lot of liquid isn't there in a blackberry and it's sweet and it's just mmm mm, lovely so there are some parts of the Bible are like that. They almost immediately, it makes sense what they mean. And, you know, those who hear will live. It's, you don't need a lot of interpreting it or anything, do you? And then other sorts of foods need a little bit more work. There's some bananas up over there that uh, they're for sale, by the way. So you can't just help yourself, or at least tell us if you help yourself. And, um, but to eat the banana, you probably aren't going to just bite into it, are you? You've probably realised you, well, you want to remove the skin. Anyone here eat the skin of bananas, just in case? Most people don't. You need to remove the skin, then you get to the nice fleshy bit. And, but it's not a lot of effort needed, is there, to access the goodness of it. A potato takes a little bit more, doesn't it? I don't suppose any of us eat raw potatoes. Is that good for you even? I'm not sure it would be. You don't necessarily have to peel them, but you certainly want to boil them till they're cooked. Then they become nourishing, yeah? Um, and... Wheat is another thing. I have, on country walks, pulled off ears of wheat in the farmer's field and just taken all the husks off and eaten the little husk, the, the seed. And, yeah, it's okay. You ever tried it? Yeah. yeah, it's okay, but you know it's a whole lot better if you... I mean, I've never ground it myself. I've just bought it ready ground from the supermarket of your choice. And, uh, but then if you mix a little salt little yeast, little water, and you knead it all together. It's, it takes quite an effort, actually, doesn't it? And then you let it rise, improve, and all that stuff, and knead it some more, and then you put it in the oven, and you cook it, and then, oh, then it's really good, isn't it? Yeah? But it's taken a bit more effort. And then if I fancy in my bread a bit of bacon... Again, I can't just go out to the nearest farm and look in the arcs, rush in, grab the pig, like this. That does not work well. Does that appeal to you? Have you seen the, their skin? It's filthy, dirty, it's all hairy. To get to the bacon, it's even more elaborate. You know, it's got to be killed in a certain way. It has to be, the blood has to be drained out, has to be butchered. I mean, it's a long process. That then the, the joint, the, the bacon area has to be cured, doesn't it, and stuff. Sorry if this is a bit brutal for you. If you're a vegetarian, please overlook this. But it's also true that some of the Bible is much harder to understand. So, but that's just true. Right? That's just how it is. But there's plenty of easy bits to get hold of. And I think it's George Bernard Shaw who said, it's not the difficult parts of the Bible that worry me, it's the easy parts. Right? Because there, the plain claims of Scripture are very, very uh, offensive until we want to respond to them. So, um, 
you know, so let's recognise there are very, there's some parts of the Bible where, for example, Jesus used really exaggerated language, and you're not supposed to take it completely literally. So uh, Matthew 5.29, there's a slide, you know, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, there's no record in the account that people right there listening to him, sort of, anyone got a knife? Quick, quick, you know. They understood he was, he was speaking an exaggerated language for impact. He's saying, look, sin really matters, so you need to treat it seriously. Not that you should literally gouge your eyes out, because if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find Jesus is very clear. It's not the eye that causes you to sin. It's the heart. It's your being. It's who you are. And so you need an answer to that. And that's the answer of the gospel, that we can have a new heart by his gift. Um, so... And then, you know, there are other parts, you know, where the Bible speaks literally, we take it literally. Where it speaks metaphorically, we take it metaphorically. So in the next slide, um, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you, this. The nasty, there are a whole series of nasty Herods. And Jesus replied, go and tell that fox. Now, Herod was not a fox, right? He was a human being. This is speaking metaphorically, right? We're not daft. We get this stuff, all right? And then in the Bible, we're also told uh, that God is like a rock. So the question is not, oh, is that sedimentary or igneous? Okay? It's saying he's rock-like. Okay? He's very solid and dependable. Um, in fact, he's more solid and dependable than rocks, because rocks can erode away. But it's a, a picture. So this, there's a posture then that hears. I just want a few points as we move to a close. We hear when we reflect believingly. Right? Hebrews 6.12 We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a believingness that we bring to Scripture, which is really important. And I want to tell you, every time you encounter Scripture, the question will arise, do you believe this? Right? Jesus said to uh, Ma- Mary and Martha when their brother had died, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In a sense, after everything God says, he could ask that question straight away to us. Do you believe this? It is utterly an important question. Do you believe this? And then, um, and we have that, at that moment, we have that opportunity to step out of anxiety into his peace, to step out of, to let these things, let his word settle and bring its fruit to our lives. To go away and think, okay, I'll clean the rest of the house. I'm leaving the toilet in your hands, Father. Now, you might find later on that his plan is actually you pay somebody to come and unblock it because he can deliver and bring his solutions in a variety of ways. But you are resting without anxiety. Next thing is we hear when we reflect obediently. In other words, we have an inclination to obey. And for me, when I was first a Christian, the, the big step here was the question, this was the question I wanted to ask. Am I willing to be willing? You hearing that question? Am I willing to be willing? Because I could tell I'm not really willing. But I found it was then helpful to say, okay, but are you willing to even be willing? And I, and I was able to say to God, okay, I think I seem to know you, so I'm going to say yes, I'm willing to be willing. Would you make that step? Are you willing to be made willing? I invite you to think about that. See, he says here, Hebrews 4.2, we've had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them 
because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. You, you, in the end, you won't really hear the scripture until you're willing to actually follow what it says. You see, God our Father does seek obedience, but it is the obedience of faith. Do you see that? It says they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Duty obedience doesn't please God. Beauty obedience, that pleases him. And then true knowledge and understanding is impossible without obedience. There's another, uh, you know, Jesus said, John 7, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. I think we better skip a couple of these. We, go to, we hear uh, when we reflect how this is God's word, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We also thank God continually. When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Right? And then we hear when we aim to come to Jesus. Do you want to stand, stand up?